Acts chapter 16, we're going to cover the first 15 verses, and um, I entitled the message, The Call to Macedonia. Verse 1, it says, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where a prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Okay, well, by way of review, if some of you weren't here last week, uh, if you remember last week's study, Henry um, shared how uh, Paul and Barnabas went back to the brethren. I'm sorry, uh, he talked about, uh, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Um, Paul tells Barnabas how he would like uh, to go back and visit all the brethren in every city that they'd preached in and to see how they were doing. But Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, and Paul, because he apparently took off, you know, he bailed out on them in Acts 13, didn't want to take them. So they both had reasons why they both decided it would be best that they would go their separate ways, and they would continue to go do ministry. And Barnabas and John Mark would go off to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas would head southwards towards Assyria. And here we are. We've arrived, as it were, in Acts 16, and, we're, and here we find Paul's call to go to Macedonia. In verses 1 through 5, we find his companion. In verses 6 through 12, we have the call. And in verses 13 through 15, we have the confirmation. You know, as I was looking at this and I was thinking about a, a man's call, I, I, I couldn't help but think of Mike Rowe. Now, some of you guys know who Mike Rowe is. He used to host a show uh, called Dirty Jobs, right? And he would act a, as an apprentice, right? He'd follow along and act as an apprentice to these guys. Uh, and he would just take on the most difficult and dirtiest jobs he could find. And I like it because it demonstrated to me, at least, how people were willing to do the most difficult jobs. And they didn't complain. It was work. And it was work that no one else did. Well... He has a top 10 list of the smelliest places he had to work at. The first one is called the bug room. The second was called the lift pump chamber. It was a waste treatment center. The third was Bracken Cave, home to 40 million bats in Austin, Texas. Number four was Bio Oregon, a fish recycling plant. The Tromel, a food separation device at a San Francisco dump. Eric Pollock's Pig Nursery in Iowa, the Grease Pit at Medicine Elementary School, a dairy farm in Erie, uh, Pennsylvania, Coyote Texas tur uh, Turkey Farm, a liquid turkey compost pile, 
and the back of an Ohio State Department Transportation Roadkill Recovery Service near Akron, Ohio. Again, I, I like what Mike Rowe does. He, he demonstrates to you and I how people are willing to do these disgusting occupations, right? And yet, when we talk about the call of God, so many people are turned off because in their mind it's not glamorous. But it's a high call of God. I think it's the highest calling one could have. David Livingston said, if a, com- if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? I like that. How can it be considered a sacrifice? Now, I know not everyone's called to be a pastor. Not everyone's called to be a preacher. Uh, not everyone is called to be a teacher. Not everyone is called to be a missionary. But we're all called to serve, aren't we? In some form or another, we're all called to serve. And what's important to everyone to know is God prepares a man, he sends a man, and that calling is developed over time. Over time. It doesn't happen overnight. And today we we live in in a culture where everything is instant. We want to see instant results. And that doesn't happen in God's economy. Even Paul, when he was saved on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he immediately began to preach Christ, and he went up to Jerusalem to try to join the disciples. But they didn't immediately receive him, did they? They didn't receive him because they were afraid of him. They didn't believe he was a disciple. Of course, he was out chasing believers and hunting them down and incarcerating them. I'd be afraid too. And soon after, we know that the Hellenists, they, they gave Paul a hard time as well, and they threatened his life. And so the brethren said, you know what, let's, take, let's send him off to, to Tarsus. And so they send him off. And then from there, Paul goes to Arabia. And then he pops up in Damascus three years later. Then, then he goes to see Peter in Jerusalem. He also sees James, the Lord's brother, and stays 15 days. And then from that point, he springs boards to Syria, and he takes off to Syria and Cilicia. And he continues to preach Christ there, and he doesn't return to Jerusalem for another 14 years. 14 years. And when he returns, he declares, he tells the disciples, hey, listen, God has given me the gospel to preach to the Gentiles. And they begin to have a discussion with him. They talk to him, and the church finally affirmed, you are sent to the Gentiles, and Peter to the Jew. But the only thing the Jerusalem council wanted him to do was remember the poor. Again, the church in Jerusalem didn't immediately give their endorsement towards Paul. Why? Because they had to see evidence in his life that God was doing the work, and that took time. Again, too uh, too many churches today are quick to put men in the pulpit or in the ministry who are unqualified or unproven. You get a chance, read 1 Timothy 3, and you you read the qualifications of those who are to serve the church. And one of those qualifications is, in verse 6, that that person is not to be a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And what's that condemnation? Pride. Pride. That's a, that's a problem for man. When, when the lights come on and people are looking at you and you're on that stage, your heart could swell up with pride. They're, hey, they're looking at me. They've come to see me rather than the Lord that saved them. And that word for novice is neophytos. And the word means freshly planted, a new convert. In our modern vernacular, we would say, that guy is green. Right? That's what we would say. That person is too fresh. He doesn't know what he's doing. And that's the idea here. We don't want to put someone who is unproven or unqualified into the ministry. You know, I like what Xavier said years ago, and it stuck to me. He says, you know, it's easy to put someone into ministry. It's hard to get them out. That stuck to me, because when I look at people who serve, it's like, you know what, time needs to go by before we we can give someone more responsibility. And then when you are more responsible, we'll give you more responsibility. But then there are those folks who say, you know what, ministry is like, whatever. Well, guess what? 
I guess ministry didn't titillate them. They want more. You know how, many, how many guys I've talked to say, hey, let's go, you can serve in the children's ministry. No, no, man, you know, I, I want to serve adults. What are they saying to me? They want to be seen. That's, that's what they want to do. They want to be seen. Time is the proving ground. Otherwise, if we begin to put unqualified people into the ministry, it can affect the church in a detrimental way. We can, we can stand and learn a lot from Paul. One, he never traveled alone. Two, he was an example of how one was to conduct himself in the church, especially when he traveled. And three, he poured his life into others. And sometimes that's a hard thing because people are always looking at you, right? People realize you have feet of clay. They say, boy, he gets annoyed over that? Something so simple? But that's what happens. But he, he poured his life into others, and he understood the importance of making disciples. And we see this when he takes Timothy with him. Notice here in verses 1 through 5, the companion. In verse 1, we see Paul's future companion in Timothy. It says here, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there whose name was Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. Now, he arrives there in Derby and Lystra, and it tells us there there's a certain disciple named Timothy. Now, we don't know if he's from Derby or Lystra, but we know he is a Lyconian. Um, and his name means to honor God, honoring God. That's a, that's a tough name to live up to, if you ask me, to honor God. Now, we're told his mother is Jewish, who happens to be a believer, and it says, but... His father is a Greek, meaning his father was probably not a believer. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this noted contrast. Timothy was a product of a mixed marriage. 1 Timothy 1.5 tells us his mother's name was Eunice and his grandmother's name was Lois. And interestingly, we don't have his father's name. And I wonder if his, if his father was alive or, or if he was still living. We're not told. And if he was alive, what was that like for him being married to a woman? Or let, let me back up. His mother-in-law was a believer. His wife's a believer. And his son's a believer. What was that like for him? And to me, when I look at individuals like that, that's either going to be for their salvation or at a judgment. It's one of the two. Because when you stand before Almighty God, he's going to say, I gave you a mother-in-law as a believer, I gave you a wife as a believer, and I gave you a son as a believer. How much more did you want? How much more did you need? And I wonder what that was like for him, being married to a woman who worshipped the God of the Bible. And she was a Jew. And you know, it's interesting, as a Jew, she was not to intermarry. She was not to marry a foreigner or a pagan. Now, I don't know all the details. I don't know why she ended up marrying this man, but she did. Maybe she was young, naive. I don't know. But we do know is that she had a genuine faith, as 1 Timothy tells us. She had a genuine faith, just like Timothy had a genuine faith. And you can pick this up again in 1 Timothy. Now, not all godly people come from godly homes, which is a miracle all in itself. Now, notice Timothy's reputation here in verse 2. It says, he was well spoken of by the brethren who are at Lystra in Iconium. Two, two different cities. He had a great reputation. His, his reputation was well attested to in Lystra and Iconium. That means he had a good moral standing. He demonstrated integrity. He wasn't known for questionable deeds. He wasn't a liar. He wasn't a drunkard. He wasn't a womanizer. He didn't have all the shortcomings that young men usually have. Matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. Man, how the church needs young men like this. It's rare. It's rare. And I think that's why he sticks out. You know, too many of our youth, are, they, they're not saying no to sin and they're giving excuses for their carnality. It's all about my rights. You know, I should be able to do this. I mean, you talk to young Christians. They, they, they want to do, I mean, they want to act and, and, and operate like the world. 
and still think that they're Christians. You know, for example, you know, Alabama's uh, law banning abortions as early as conception. Great law. The moment of conception, there's no abortion, right? And it's, all, it's a lightning rod all over social media. And, and a, there's a young female uh, blogger, and she says that she, she's a, a, a pro-lifer, she's a conservative, and she's a Christian, yet she disagrees with the ban. Does that make sense to you? And then you have a, a congressional representative uh, who she claims to be a Christian and also disagrees with the ban, insisting that this is an issue of, of a matter of separation of church and state. Claims to be a Christian. Young woman. Then you have Christians who go to nightclubs. They're hanging out in bars. And for some reason, integrity and, and their reputation carry a different definition. I mean, I'm very careful about where I go, as it is. You know, uh, I think I've told you before, I, 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 I go shopping, then later on I'll, I'll get a text from somebody, hey, I saw you at the store. I go, why didn't you say hello? <laughs> That's because they were observing me. They were following me. I'm like, where's this pastor going, right? <laughs> And I, I guess I couldn't blame them. I mean, they want to see how you actually operate, but it's kind of scary. I mean, <laughs> and again, and yet, here's a young man, Timothy. He is surrounded in a world of idolatry and mythology. His father is a Greek, yet he maintains his integrity and his reputation. And it's well known. Imagine that. It's well known. What do you think folks say about you? Now, listen, I understand the scripture says we're light and we're salt. The world's going to hate you, but that's not what I'm referring to. I'm, I'm, what I'm referring to is can they point to some moral breakdown in your life? Oh, that guy's a liar. And I see that guy talking to all kinds of girls. I, I see him drinking with the boys. He's cracking up the jokes. That's the issue. Can... can can they look at your life and say, you know what, that guy has, or that woman, has good moral standing. That's what, it, that's what it means to be light and salt. What kind of character do you carry? We should be known for our love and our character. Notice verse 3, Timothy's response to Paul's invitation. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Paul sees his character, and he says, man, I, I want this kid to join me. He'll be great to assist me. I need this kid. He had a great reputation. He doesn't have to worry about giving a response to this guy wherever he goes. You ever been with somebody, and they go, hey, why are you hanging out with that guy? And you got to give excuses. Hey, he ain't so bad, you know? <laughs> Paul doesn't have to do that with Timothy. He doesn't have to do that with Timothy. He, he has a great reputation. He doesn't have, and that's settled. He's like, man, I checked that box off. I can take this guy with me, and no one's going to give me a hard time over his character. And Paul already looking ahead and knowing he's going to visit synagogues in every city he, that he visits, he understands he's going to receive some opposition if they brought him along as he was uncircumcised. He was an uncircumcised Jew because they knew his father was a Greek. Now, Greeks and Romans, they detested circumcision. They thought it was barbaric, that it was a perversion, and it was indecent. That's the way they viewed circumcision. So you can understand uh, Timothy's father. He's like, honey, uh, no, we're not doing that. And do you think she had any weight to her argument? She was a woman. She's, she's at the bottom of the, of the rung here when it comes to the culture. Now, in the Jewish community, you may have heard this, a Jew is a Jew by virtue of their mother, okay? Not the father. But it's not a biblical view. You won't find that in Scripture, okay? And where, where do they get this from? Well, the rabbis cite Deuteronomy chapter 7. There's a problem in Deuteronomy chapter 7 because the passage is teaching the people, God is instructing the people, hey, you're going to go into the land full of pagans, 
and you're going to kick all these nations out. And as you kick these nations out, what I want you to do or don't want you to do is make covenants with them. And I don't want you intermarrying with the people. Okay, why? Because if you marry those people, what they're going to do is they're going to take your sons away from following me. Okay, and so that was the instruction there. But for some reason, the rabbis do some gymnastics with the scripture, and they're saying that by de facto, uh, a Jew is a Jew by, by virtue of the, of the mother. And that's not the case. Let me ask you a question. Who is the father of the Jew? Abraham. What was Abraham? No, but what was he? Was He was a male, right? Sarah isn't the father of the Jew. Abraham is. Abraham is. As a matter of fact, when you look at the genealogies, who do they go through? The men, right? All the way through. For some reason, they got it backwards. But nonetheless, in this time, in this culture, they still observe that. They, they understood that, yeah, he's a Jew, but he's an incomplete Jew. He's uncircumcised. So even though he's a Jew in their eyes, he's uncircumcised. This poses a problem for Paul. Now, here's the irony of all this. Paul is fresh from seeing the council in Jerusalem in, in Acts chapter 15, right? The issue is there's some Judaizers there, and they're saying, hey, um, Gentiles, unless they, they observe the Mosaic law and have themselves circumcised, they're not saved. Okay? And so they, they debate the issue, and eventually they come to the conclusion, after Peter's witness, you know, how the Holy Spirit came down in Cornelius' house, they get saved while uncircumcised. So they, they understand the Gentiles are saved. And so they deduce, hey, they don't need to be circumcised. So Paul, here's this letter. I want you to go to the, the churches that you visited and you're going to visit and tell them and give them the decrees not to eat, not to eat anything that's strangled or anything with blood in it, uh, abstain from sexual morality, and don't worry about circumcision. Okay? So here's, here, think about this. Here's Paul with this letter. Okay? And, and he shows up here in Derby and Lystra. Great young man. Great just reputation. I'm going to take this kid, but he's uncircumcised. Okay, Timothy, we're going to circumcise you because we're going to go to the churches and tell them they don't have to worry about circumcision. But why? Why was it necessary? It was necessary because they were going to visit synagogues. It would give them access. It would give them accessibility. had nothing to do with adding to his salvation. It was just, uh, uh, it's like a passport, okay? If you have an American passport, you can go to almost any country in the world. If I gave you a Colombian passport, guess what? You ain't coming to America. Okay? It's very hard. Okay? It's, it's for accessibility. It was, a, it was a principle Paul came to use himself. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, it says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. And to the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some great principle great principle now imagine here's timothy (laughs) he's faced with this dilemma okay i wonder what that was like for him you know as as paul says you know i want to take you i think you'll be an asset to the team okay we're going to go out and we're going to evangelize the world god is going to direct us as you as as you know he says but uh we're going to circumcise you now, folks, listen, let me tell you something. When you circumcise a baby, that baby's not going to remember when it gets older. You're an adult. It's a whole different matter. Okay? It's not like we're going to go to the hospital and give you some painkillers here and numb the area. This is, this is where the rubber meets the road as a believer. Okay? And I can imagine as, as Paul's, or Timothy's thinking about this, he's thinking, you know, 
Man, I remember when, when Paul came to Lystra the first time in Acts 14. And there was a crippled man. And he laid hands on him and he was healed. And the whole city got into an uproar. They were excited. As a matter of fact, the multitudes treated Paul and Barnabas like they were gods. And they began to try to offer sacrifices. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do this. You can't do this. And he tried to explain to them, hey, God's a creator. We're just men like you are. But it didn't matter. They still sacrificed them. And then later on, we, we know that the Jews from Antioch came up. And they began to give them grief. And they began to move the multitudes. And they stoned Paul. And they drug him out of the city. Now imagine, Timothy, I'm sure, saw all this. He, he witnessed this. He saw this man get healed. And then he sees Paul get stoned. And they drag him out of the city. And then before you know it, here comes Paul right back into the city. He's seen all this. And this, I think, I think was embedded in his mind. If this man can do that for the gospel, then I can do this for the Lord. He's willing to, to take, if you will, that sacrifice, which was a minimal one. He was, he was committed to the furtherance of the gospel. Is there anything in your life that you wouldn't do for the gospel? Is there anything in your life that limits you and the gospel? Are you completely sold out? Or is there that one thing that you can't let go? Notice in verses 4 through 5, the churches are encouraged by faithful men. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem, which we spoke about in Acts 15. So the churches were strengthened in faith, in the faith, and increased in number daily. Notice the churches needed to be encouraged. Okay? And what's interesting to me is the vast majority of folks uh, that come to church, they don't see what goes on behind the veil, if you will. They don't know the circumstances that men of God go through. Now, I can say I've never, really never suffered, but I read about it. I look at men across, you know, in the other part of the world, and they suffer tremendously. So I, I know it happens. And so most people don't know the circumstances that go on in the, in the lives of men who serve God. That's why it's important to keep the elders in church in prayer. There are pastors, again, all, all over the world under extreme uh, circumstances. And here they deliver a letter directly from the apostles, men who walk with the Lord. Think about that. They understand this letter came from men who actually walk with the Lord and is being conveyed to them. And they were encouraged. But the work doesn't stop there. Notice the call here in verses 6 through 12. This is here in verses 6 through 8, we have the Holy Spirit leading and in control. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Myasia, they, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing down Myasia, they came down to Troas. So here they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. And Paul, hoping to travel in a northeasterly pattern, uh, was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not told how he was forbidden, but the Scripture is telling us he was forbidden. So you can imagine, here's Paul. He's trekking along. I'm trying to get over here, and no, the Holy Spirit is saying no. And then he goes up to the north part towards Bithynia, and the Lord says, no, you're not going there either. And, and it's interesting to me because I'm thinking, well, this is Paul, the great apostle, right? You would think he knows where he's going, but no, he doesn't. But he's moving. He understands the gospel needs to go out. He understands it needs to be preached. And so here, Paul and his companions, they go through Myasia, hoping to go around the northern region, and the Spirit forbids them. The Holy Spirit was not leading them into Turkey. And unbeknownst to him, the Holy Spirit was going to take them to Europe. Notice verse 9, Paul receives a vision to go to Macedonia. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So he, he, he receives this vision. Now, this is not a dream. 
okay? This is a vision. It's a divine picture, if you will, or a video. Um, And Paul, in this vision, sees a man from Macedonia pleading for help. And the language that's being used here is a man who is using excessive force. He is pleading and begging. And the way the language is describing it here, it's almost like someone is drowning and begging for help. And what is, what is your natural inclination? To help. It's to help. And there's no mention of the man's name or, or where in Macedonia he's to find this man. And as far as, uh, as far as Paul is concerned, he has his marching orders and that's all he needs. He is ready to go. And notice in verse 10, the plans to go to Macedonia. He says, now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Again, I'm sure Paul knows that this is the Lord. He's excited. He's going he's to lead these guys into Europe because the doors in, uh, to Turkey have been closed. And notice here it says the we in this verse. Notice that we. The we spoken of here is Dr. Luke, okay? He's the one who's written the book of Acts. And somehow he meets up with Paul here in Troas. Now, we're not told why he's there, what his his purpose is, but he is here and he meets up uh, with Paul and he he joins uh, the group uh, to travel with him from Troas. Now, again, as you go through the book of Acts, you're going to see we, and as you see, we, that's, that's always Luke. Hey, we're going here, we're, going, we're doing this, this is Luke. But when he says they, he is not with them. Okay? We need to understand that as we go through the book. And please note, they concluded, they all concluded that this was the Lord's calling for them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. Now, I wonder if any of them said, you know what, Paul? Um, he's taking this this way, and the Lord said no. And then he took us this way, and the Lord said no. Now, I, I wonder if they're thinking, you know, really, is the Lord really speaking to this guy? You know? But then, when he has this vision, I think somehow, some way, the Lord had put that peace in their heart. And it says they all agreed. They all agreed. They all knew that this was of the Lord. Notice in verse 11, they depart from Macedonia. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. Again, interesting, Luke gives us a detailed account of their departure. They depart Troas and set a straight course to Samothrace, and from Samothrace to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. Again, what's interesting about this passage is it took them less than two days to get there. That means... They had their, their wind towards their backs. And, it, and the reason I say this is because if you look at Acts chapter 20, on their return trip back, it took them five days. It took them five days. The wind was working in their favor, but on their way back, the wind was boisterous, so they had to set their, the sailors had to set their sails to zigzag back and forth, hoping to catch the wind to get them back. So they get to Samothrace. It's an island in the Aegean Sea. It's about 69 miles square. It's about 11 miles long. Um, it has a mountain, Mount Fingari, which stands a little over 5,200 feet. Um, again, a little, little side history here. Um, housed in the Louvre of Paris uh, is displayed the winged victory of Nike or Samothrace. You say, what in the world is that? Well, in the Louvre, there is this, this marble statue. Okay, it's been broken, the head's gone, but there's, so it's a figure of a woman, and it's a picture of victory. And it's there in the Louvre, and I've seen it, it's about eight feet tall, it's an amazing piece of artwork. It used to reside there. And it was, it was commemorated for a great battle, a great um, uh, ocean battle that took place. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, some say this is the most magnificent piece in Hellenistic history and there's a lot of uh mystery surrounding this piece uh because they don't know who the sculptor is when it was created uh again many many stories around this piece but this piece predated paul this piece was there 
when Paul landed in Samothrace. And for me, that's a little side story. It, it kind of intrigues me because I saw this piece, so I, I always, uh, I'm engaged that way. I remember we went to um, Hearst Castle, and there's a, a, another piece there, and uh, it's, um, I forget the name of the idol, but you know, one hand's open, the other one's closed, and it represented the, uh, the Nile god, and if both fists were clenched, then the river wouldn't run. So one fist was open. And uh, I remember the, the person giving the tour, they said, uh, this predated Moses. And I just thought, man. So that tells me that Moses probably saw this thing. He probably walked by it. He probably jumped on it as a kid. Who knows? You know? And the same, I felt the same way when I, when, I, when I saw this piece because there aren't too many things that come out of this island, but this is one of them. And Paul, when he landed there and spent the night, that piece was there. And so here they spend the night and they set sail to Neapolis, then on to Philippi. And Neapolis was set on the Ignatian Way, um, which basically connected Rome with Istanbul, modern-day Istanbul. So you can imagine this highway was instrumental for the Romans as they marched and, and uh, um, obviously marched their armies back and forth and also for trade purposes. And so it was a very uh, strategic point. And notice in verse 12, they arrive in Philippi. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. Again, take note. Philippi is the foremost, or rather the first uh, among cities in the region of Macedonia. And he tells us why. It was a colony. And they stayed in that colony for some days. Philippi was a Roman colony. Now, why is this significant? Well, Augustus Caesar, he pronounced an edict, uh, us italcum, which means the Italian right, which applied to all cities of the Roman Empire. And under this pronouncement, all the government officials, all municipalities, all prefects, all magistrates were Roman citizens. So if you're a Macedonian, guess what? You didn't hold the government position in Philippi. If you're a Greek... You didn't occupy a position in the city. They were all Romans. And usually they were retired military men or someone that Romans sent down and inserted for them to govern. So this is a Roman colony. And again, under this law, um, if you were born in a Roman colony, you had the rights of a Roman citizen, Okay, which was very important. Um, if you attacked this, one of these cities, it was an attack as if you attacked Rome itself. So you could see how much importance they put on these colonies. And this is going to be an important piece of information as we study the rest of this passage. Notice Macedonia. Does anybody know who was born in Macedonia? Alexander the Great. Okay? He came out of Macedonia. Uh, Alexander the Great's father, uh, Philip of Macedon, named Philippi after himself in, I think, 359 B.C. Um, later on, we know he was, he, he was killed. And later in history, around 44 B.C., we know Julius Caesar was assassinated. And why is this important? Well, Mark Antony and Octavian uh, confront Brutus and Gaius uh, on the battlefields there just uh, in the plains of Philippi. And they defeat them there in Philippi. And it was known as the Battle of Philippi. Again, uh, it became a Roman colony under Augustus in 42 BC, right after this battle. So again, furthermore, this is going to play as another bit of important information as we begin to piece this story together as it relates to the next verse. Um, we, now, as I'm looking at this passage... Um, Turn with me to Acts 18, because this is actually another piece of important information. Um, Notice what it says here in uh, verse 1 and 2. It says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Achilla, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife. Why? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. What does this mean? Claudius, the emperor, expelled the Jews from Rome. He kicked them all out. He was tired of them. 
He got tired of them asking for more privileges. He, they just weighed heavy on him. He was just fatigued and was tired of them. And so he, he, he uh, gave an edict that all the Jews should leave Rome. Well, Philippi is a colony. What does that mean? All the Jews are to leave Rome. They're to leave Philippi because it's a Roman colony. So they were expelled from there as well. Again, keep this in mind as we move through verse 18 here. Note, uh, or, I'm sorry, verse 13. Notice the confirmation in verses 13 through 15. So, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Again, here we find the gospel presented to these women. It was the Sabbath day. They went out of the city to the riverside, the, the Gangites River, which is still there to this day. And evidently, Philippi, being a Roman colony, and because of Claudius' edict, expelled the Jews from Philippi as well. Therefore, there was no synagogue in the city. Okay? According to tradition, you need at least 10 males to assemble to make a congregation. And it's interesting because I looked that up. Why do you need 10 males? Do you realize that back in Numbers, remember when the 12 spies went into the land? How many gave a good report? How many gave a bad report? And they call that an assembly. So that's where they get that from. The 10 men comprised an assembly. So without 10 men in the city, you couldn't have a a synagogue. Mm -hmm. So apparently there wasn't enough men in the city to congregate. And because it's a Sabbath, and whoever's left happened to be women. And here they are, they congregate by the riverside. And what are they doing? They're not worshiping the gods of the Romans, of the Roman pantheon. They're there because they want to worship the God of the Bible. And notice what Paul and his companions do. They sit down and they begin to speak to the women there. They're not preaching their... Or they're not making a scene. They're not in a soapbox. They're just having a, they sit down and they're having a conversation with these women. Now, imagine if you're Paul. Think of the picture. Here's Paul. He approaches these women. He says, hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm Paul. I studied, under, uh, I studied under Gamaliel. I was a Pharisee. I was a member of the Sanhedrin. I used to be, okay? But I'm not any longer. Let me tell you why. Oh, wait, wait. wait. I forgot to mention here... Here, we have a doctor with us. Uh, what's your name? Oh, it's Luke. I have Luke with me. And, and I have Silas. And Silas, what are you? He's a prophet. And not only is he a prophet, oh, we have Timothy. Now, he's part of the gang. I mean, he just started with us. He's kind of new, but he's with us. Could you imagine what that scene was like? Sitting there by the riverside, you had these men. And, and to me, what's so impactful about, about this scene is, is it's a dark place. And here comes hope. Okay. What was that like? These are the first people in Europe that they begin to share the gospel to. And they happen to be women. Remember, historically, women are at the bottom of, of the rung in society. Rabbis were not allowed to speak to women. It was not permissible. It was forbidden. It was against the law. It was said... The words of the Torah should be burned rather than be entrusted to women. That's the, way, that's the way the rabbis thought. What was the prayer that Jesus talked about when he shared? He said, you know, thank God I'm not a tax collector, right? He says, or a woman. The last thing he said, a woman. But that didn't matter to Paul. God had opened his eyes to the gospel. Remember, he's a Pharisee of Pharisee, right? And here's Paul down at the riverside having a conversation with these women about Jesus. And here they are conversing with the women. When here in verse 14 it says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Notice where Lydia is from. She's from Thyatira, which is directly south from Philippi on the western side of Turkey. And she is a seller of purple. But more importantly, she worshiped God. 
She worshiped God. Again, an interesting woman set before us. She's a seller of purple. The purple dye she sold came from the murex shellfish and was quite tedious and difficult to extract from. Its value was literally worth more in weight than in gold. This, this shellfish lived in relatively deep water. Uh, they were caught in baited traps suspend, suspended from floats. The dye was then extracted from the glands of thousands of putrefied crushed shellfish left to bake in the sun. The resulting liquid was used to dye cloth fibers in manipulated variations of color ranging from pink to violet. And according to historian Casho, 10,000 shellfish would produce one gram of dye. 10,000 shellfish would produce one gram of dye. And that, that dye would only um, dye the hem of a garment. Think about that. A pound of pre-dyed wool would set you back one pound of gold. She had a good business going on. And here we find her on the Sabbath, the busiest day of the week. Do you realize what she's doing? She says, God is more important to me than mammon. She could have been in the city, busy selling dye, but she chose a day where she wanted to set apart where she can worship God, a non-Jewish woman, a pagan. How many people prefer work and money over setting time to worship God? You know, as, as you know, I have an opportunity to sit here on Sunday and and I, I, I look around, I'm thinking, where's so-and-so? Where is this person at? Then you find out they're, oh, they're at this activity or that activity. And I'm thinking, how important is God to you? Has, has the message got stale to you? Is your heart open to the Lord? I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying, where are you going? Do you value God that much? Notice, furthermore, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. You know, Proverbs uh, 8.17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. This woman embodies that scripture. She is diligently seeking the Lord. God honors his word. The word for open in, in the Greek is an interesting word. It, it means to cause to see what was not seen before. It means to open the mind. In other words, turning on the light. As a believer, I think you guys will understand this. You pick up the scriptures, okay, yeah, yeah, I kind of get it. You get saved, you're like, I never saw it that way before. The light has come on. And, And that's what the scripture is saying here. Her mind and her heart were opened to the things of God. Do you remember when the two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus when Jesus, you know, died? And he, and he resurrected, and they didn't know he had resurrected yet. And here they are on the road to Emmaus, and they're, they're distraught, their hearts are broken. And, and then Jesus kind of, he, he, he kind of joins them, and he's walking with them. And then he begins to, to open the scripture to them, right? And he's sharing to them how the Messiah would suffer. And it tells us in Luke 24, 31, it says, Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And that's what the word is. God's word was open to this woman. Her heart was open. And that, again, she is understanding the things of God spoken of by Paul. You know, Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart one believes into righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. And in verse 17 it says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The word of God. God was opening her heart. And I could just imagine this woman's heart was just receiving the word, and she's saying, Yes, Lord, this is it. I've been worshiping you. I didn't know you totally, but now I do. And she accepts the Lord by the riverside. Do you remember where you accept the Lord? Where you were at? I do. Man, you're talking about where life, I was at in life. It's a dark place. Her heart was open, literally, towards the gospel, and she accepts the Lord. Do you realize Lydia became the first believer in Europe? She's the first believer in Europe. 
And again, this confirmed to Paul and his companions that God indeed had sent them. And here's Paul. I'm going over here. I'm going over there. And God, nope, nope, nope. Guess what? I'm going to send you a vision. Yeah, you're going up there. Okay, great. Let's go. We're gone. And here they are. And, and notice here in verse 15, Lydia's household responds. It says here, And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Boy, she must have been pretty persuasive. She, she persuaded a, a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews. She was able to persuade him. And, and he stayed with her. Now, we don't know um, if there was a time frame. We don't know if, if they all immediately accept the Lord at that point or if she ran home and told her household. We don't know, but we know the end result. We know they all came to faith out of this woman. Now, if, if Paul had only focused on men, guess what? This would never happen. This wouldn't happen. I love this story because, again, you know, we... We look at, at society and we value people on different levels. And here's Paul, who at one point in his life would never talk to a woman. And, and the irony for him is here he is almost 20 years later, something like that, 17, 18 years later, and here he's given the gospel to a, 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 a Gentile. That must have blown his mind. God loves people. So much so he'll send someone, put them on a boat, cover hundreds of miles just for one person. He'll do that. And he'll use a corrupt government to do it. He'll do that. Who would have thought God would consider a seller of purple? But then again, who would have thought he'd consider you? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, that our hearts would be in a place, Lord, where we understand our calling. We understand, Lord, that you desire for us uh, uh, to view people the way you do. And no one is too far, Lord, and, and no one is, is above salvation, Lord. And Lord, uh, we pray, Lord, as we interact with our coworkers, our friends, our family members, that we would have a fresh perspective. And Lord, uh, see them the way you see them. And, Lord, be moved, Lord, to just give them the gospel. And so, Lord, um, we commit ourselves to you. And if, Lord, we're failing this area, Lord, give us just a refreshment from your spirit, Lord, that we would just be revived, Lord. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. And, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.